Thank you, Father, that we can come to you in prayer. Thank you for how you give us opportunity after opportunity to approach your throne of grace. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us through the power of your word this morning, that it would be transformational for our hearts, that it would direct us closer to you, that you would give us a more beautiful picture of who you are, and that that would change our hearts by beholding Jesus lifted up. Lord, only you can do this through the power of your word and the power of the Holy Spirit. So we just ask that you dig out our ears, that you would be the only voice that we hear. Take over. May the words of our mouths and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Amen. As we begin this morning, just a reminder to, if you missed any of the past messages and you're wondering where things are headed, you can go to our website and you can click on media and you can go down and you can find there on podcasts or uh, sermons where it lists the different messages that have happened recently. Today we're going to be diving a little bit deeper into that high priestly prayer that Jesus prayed in John chapter 17. I want to tell you a story about John and Ace. John and Ace flew to a specific place where they went on a little hike. And as they were out on this hike, they walked up to this rock and they were there on this rock when suddenly they noticed that something was coming down the rock. And as this creature came down the rock, can you imagine what might have been going through their hearts? I'm just going to put a picture up on the screen of this creature or one like it that was coming down towards them. At least, hopefully, we'll have it up there. If not, just imagine that you have an African lion coming down a rock towards you. There it is, right? How would you feel to see a lion coming down a rock towards you? Now, I've been on a safari before. I was blessed to go and do some mission work in Kenya. And we got to travel around. And one of the highlights of our time traveling through the 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 safari that we did at one point was to see a lion. Now, it was within about, I don't know, 30 yards of us probably, and we were inside of a vehicle. And I didn't even think once about stepping outside of that vehicle. But John and Ace watched as this creature came closer and closer, and they had no vehicle nearby. They weren't protected by anything. How would you feel? What emotions would be going through your heart to be facing down an African lion? It's interesting because in the Bible, Jesus is described as the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's first introduced as that when Jacob is blessing his 12 sons. As he's blessing them, he blesses Judah and he says that there's going to come a a lion. Uh, You're going to be like a lion. And he describes the descendant of Jacob who would be like a lion. Scary, isn't it? Is Jesus scary to you? He's not, shouldn't be scary to us, should he? Go with me to John chapter 17, where we have been looking at this high priestly prayer. We just dove into it briefly last week, but in John chapter 17, this is right before Jesus goes to the cross, and last week we looked at how he talked about the hour has come, What was the hour? 
for him to go to the cross. And he said, Father, glorify the Son so that the Son may glorify you. He said, and going to the cross, when I'm lifted up, may that bring glory to you because it reveals who you are as the God who gives himself out of love for his creatures. And then he went on to say, and, and I want for you to glorify everyone else with me so that, so that they can share in the glory which we had throughout eternity for you loved me before the foundation of the world. He said, we shared in this glory of love throughout eternity and I want for you to bring these others to be a part of that throughout eternity. I want for them to have that, that joyful fellowship that we have had throughout eternity. I want you to pick up in verse 5. This is where we left off last week. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Verse 6 says this, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. I don't know about you, but when I read this prayer and I think about if Jesus had any prayer to pray, if he could pray anything for me, why does he pray this? Have you ever read through this and thought, okay, that's great. This, I know this is supposed to be a really important prayer, but that's just not really touching my heart right now. <laughs> I don't see how that's changing my life, that this is a life-changing essential prayer that I need to hear. But Jesus is saying something really significant here. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. We see that he transitions from a focus on the glory of God to the name of God in this prayer. If you skip down, to verse 11, it says, Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father. Keep through your, what? Name, those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. This is, one of the first requests that Jesus makes in this entire prayer is he focuses on the glory of God. He focuses on what eternal life is all about. In verse 3, that eternal life is to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And his request is that he would keep them in his name. He repeats this multiple times. If you go down, finally, in verse 26, it says, And I have declared to them your name. I've manifested it. I've declared it. I've kept them your name, and will declare it that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Isn't that beautiful? It says, my desire is that you would keep them in this name so that they can have the love that you have given to me, the love in which you have loved me may be in them, and I may be in them. So let's look a little bit deeper into what whole idea of the name of God is all about. Go back with me to Exodus chapter 34. We looked briefly at the prayer that Moses prayed last week where he said, show me your glory. And what did God say? He said, I will make all of my goodness pass before you. That is his glory. The glory of God is all of his goodness, all that he does to benefit all of creation. And in verse uh, chapter 5 of, of verse 34, uh, chapter 34 of verse 5, sorry, a little dyslexic there. Now the Lord descended in the cloud. He's coming to answer this prayer of Moses, show me your glory. 
and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. This is the point where God shows up and he declares his name and he declares who he is to Moses. Throughout the Bible, the story of the Bible, you find that names have significance in that when somebody has named something, when Jacob is named Jacob, meaning deceiver, he was the one who went and deceived Esau. And Esau says, weren't you named well because you, he deceived you, uh, he says this to, Israel, to his uh, father, he deceived you and took my birthright. And then you have a story where later on Jacob's name is changed to Israel because he wrestled with God and he overcame. So he gets the name Israel. Well, here, God is going to declare what his name is. And remember, this is significant because Jesus, in that important moment before going to the cross, as he's praying specifically for you, because it says there that he's praying for all those who would believe in the word of the disciples. And you and I are here because we've believed this story about Jesus. He's praying for you, and he's praying that you would be kept in the name that he has manifested. So verse 6 goes on to say, And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. This is what he he comes down to declare his name. and, And when it says the Lord there, you notice how it has capital letters? That's because the Hebrew word there is Yahweh, or some older English used to call it Jehovah. And in English, we use Lord in a lot of our translations because the Jews didn't believe that you could write the name Yahweh, that you could say that name. And so instead, they would put Adonai in Hebrew, which is Lord. So we read there his name, and the Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed Yahweh, Yahweh God, that's Elohim, merciful and gracious. God is describing who he is. He's describing what he's all about. And the first thing he starts with is mercy. I don't know about you, but that's good news for me. But that's how God starts off in describing himself. I am merciful. And not only that, I'm gracious. Meaning, not only do I I bring mercy to those who have fallen short of the glory of God, but I, I also gracious in that I show favor and blessing and I I pour out my goodness on people's lives. Long-suffering. God is patient. I've noticed that again and again in my life. I don't know about you, but if God wasn't patient, I wouldn't be here. If God wasn't merciful, I wouldn't be here. If God wasn't gracious, I wouldn't be here. And he's abounding in goodness and truth. Isn't this beautiful? This is the God that we come to worship. This is what his name is all about. This is the beauty of who he is. Bounding in goodness of truth, and the next verse continues, keeping mercy for thousands. That's thousands of generations. The good news is we haven't even gone thousands of generations from this point in history, so there's enough mercy for you. And forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. The good news is that that God is forgiving, that he's willing for you to come to him. 
And the good news, too, is that he's a God of justice. That this world that is so full of pain and ugliness because of sin, he says, I'm not going to let that go on forever. At one point, I'm going to bring an end to it. I'm going to enable you to be freed from this. I'm not going to let this go on forever. There's also a picture of justice here. Look at Moses' response, verse 8. So Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. When we talk about the goodness of God, when we talk about the love of God, when we talk about the mercy of God, it should move us to worship in such a way that it, we humble ourselves before this beautiful, loving God who cares so much about us. It should move our hearts to the core as we see how entirely different we are from this perfect being who has poured himself out for us. And you know, the beautiful thing is, when Moses, the coming chapters, he, he receives more instruction, and then he comes down from the mountain. When he comes down from the mountain, as, as he gets down the mountain, he, he comes to Aaron and the rest of them. Actually, it's the end of this chapter. In verse 29, we'll just pick up the story. Now it was, so when Moses came down from Sinai, and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand when he came down from the mountain, that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone while he talked with him. So this glory of God was revealed through the name of God being revealed to Moses, and it was so impactful that Moses' skin was actually glowing. So when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. Isn't this tragic? Who did God reveal himself to be? Merciful, gracious, full of goodness, abounding in goodness and truth. All of these things he revealed that this is who he is, and yet when the Israelites saw the, just the remainder of that glory reflected on the face of Moses, it terrified them. Why is that? Why is God scary to us? Why do we see God in all of his beauty, all of his mercy, all of his love, and yet there's something inside of us that's a bit terrifying? In the magazine, Signs of the Times, October 17, 1892, it says this, False views of God and hence of Christ are largely entertained today. Well, may we offer the prayer of Moses, show me your glory. It says, a lot of us entertain false thoughts about Jesus. A lot of us need to pray the same prayer that Moses prayed. Show me your glory. I want to see who you are, God. Then it goes on to say, Satan is seeking to veil Jesus from our sight to eclipse his light. For when we get even a glimpse of his glory, we are attracted to him. Sin hides from our view the matchless charms of Jesus. Prejudice, selfishness, self-righteousness, and passion blind our eyes so that we do not discern the Savior. Sin hides the face of God from us. Sin leads us to hide from God. You remember what happened in the Garden of Eden? Adam and Eve, they ate of the fruit of the tree. And they tried to make themselves uh, coverings with fig leaves. And, and then God comes down into the garden. And, and what is God coming to do when he comes down into the garden? He's coming to promise them that he's going to send them a 
descendant who will crush the serpent's head. That's what he's going to do in Genesis 3.15. But what do Adam and Eve do when God comes in the garden? They hide from him. They're scared of him because they have believed the lie of the serpent that God doesn't have their best in mind, that God's actually wanting to hurt them, that he doesn't want what is best for them. And these lies have led them to sin. And that sin has led them to be terrified of God. Sin is not something to mess around with, friends. You know, we can talk about the goodness and the mercy and the love of God, and we want to talk about it because we want for Jesus to deal with the sin problem in our hearts. We want him to take care of this junk in our hearts because that stuff keeps us from being loving people. It keeps us from, from healthy relationships with each other and healthy relationships with God. And we want, we want for Jesus to deal with this. We don't want to hang on to it. Because hanging on to it, it just mars our picture of this beautiful God. And it, it, it leads us to actually fear God. God. It goes on to say this, Oh, if we would by faith draw nigh to God, He would reveal to us His glory, which is His character. And the praise of God would flow forth from human hearts and be sounded by human voices. Then we would forever cease to give glory to Satan by sinning against God and talking about doubt and unbelief. At the beginning of our service, we read Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 25 that tells us that Jesus is able to save to the uttermost. He uses this word, the uttermost of, like he's able to save in every aspect of your life, everything that you're going through, every problem that you face, every sin that you have in your life, he's able to save completely. And then it goes on to say, because he ever lives to make intercession for us. This word for intercession is it's talking about the high priest and what he would go in and he would go into the, to the, the sanctuary to intercede for the sins of the people. But here's the thing. This whole concept tends to get twisted in our minds. In fact, it got twisted for the Israelites. When you come to the place where Jesus is coming on the scenes, the book, The Desire of Ages, describes how they had become totally confused about what this sanctuary service meant. You know, in Exodus 25, it tells us that he was going to build this sanctuary so that he could dwell among us. He asked Moses to make it so that he could dwell among us. His purpose was to come close to us, to, to restore communion. But by the time Jesus comes along, this is what they thought about the sanctuary. Desire of Ages, page 115, says, Men were led to fear God, as one who delighted in their destruction. The sacrifices that should have revealed his love were offered only to appease his wrath. And you find little glimmers of this in the Old Testament. I mean, isn't this what they were trying to do? They were following all of the other cults, all of the other worship systems, which, which would actually eventually sacrifice their own children in order to appease an angry God, in order to... to Make a God happy with them. They followed these same things. You, you find kings who would go and actually sacrifice their children. These are Israelite kings who should be following after God. And God had said in Jeremiah, actually, that thought never crossed my mind. I never even thought of sacrificing your children to appease my wrath. That, that thought never came into my mind. I don't know what you're doing. But this is what 
we find in all of the different religious systems in the world that there is this idea that somehow we can come to God and we can transform his feelings towards us by our actions. So I want to say something to you. I want you to come to the 10 days of prayer. I would love for you to come every night of the 10 days of prayer. But if you're coming to the 10 days of prayer so that you can come into favor with God, so that you can convince him to love you, then please don't come to the 10 days of prayer. I'm just going to say it right now. It's not even worth it. Because this idea of coming and praying to a God that you need to convince, that you need to appease, that you need to, to get him to love you, you're not even really praying to the God that we serve. You're praying to a false God. Because your misconceptions about God. This is challenging to me because I've realized that much of my life I've said a lot of prayers where I'm trying to convince God. I'm trying to, to, to confess enough so that he'll accept me. But Jesus already died on the, sins for, on, the, on the cross for all of my sins. I come to him in confession in order to experience the healing of his grace. Not so that I can convince him to love me and to forgive me. It's essential that we recognize what Jesus is doing for us as our high priest in the heavenly sanctuary. The great controversy says this, The love of the Father, no less than the Son, is the fountain of salvation for the lost race. And in the ministration in the sanctuary above, the council of peace shall be between them both. What exactly is this talking about? Let's look at Zechariah chapter 6. Zechariah chapter 6, for those of you who are doing the Believe His Prophets reading plan, that's reading through the Bible by 2020, a chapter a day. This was our chapter reading for this morning. And yesterday, for the very first time, I saw something in Zechariah that opened my eyes in a bigger way to what God is all about, what He is doing in this intercession that's taking place. I hope that you're enjoying your reading plans as you've begun a new year. I hope that you're still able to to continue with them because there's nothing like diving into the Word of God. This reveals the character of God to us like nothing else. In the Bible, we find a God of love that we don't recognize when we're just trying to figure God out on our own. In verse 12, it says this of chapter 6, Behold the man whose name is the branch. You remember that we talked about how Jesus is called the branch in Isaiah chapter 11. We talked about that in the message titled The Gift Exchange, where Jesus lived in Nazareth, and he was possibly titled the Nazarene because of the, the term the branch from Isaiah. Behold the man who is, whose name is the branch. This is understood to be a messianic term. This is to point to Jesus. From his place he shall branch out, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Yes, he shall build the temple of the Lord. He shall bear the glory. It says that Jesus is going to be the one who, every aspect of the sanctuary, we talked about this in our Sabbath school class this morning, every aspect of the sanctuary was to point to Jesus. Jesus is the foundation of the entire system. And Jesus is going to be brought glory through bringing each of us to a greater knowledge of himself and to bringing us to salvation. But then it goes on and says this, and shall sit and rule on his throne. This is only the second place in the Bible where you find a priest who is also a king. Does anybody else, does anybody know where the other place is? A priest who is a king before this. Somebody by the name of Melchizedek. 
king of righteousness is what his name means, and Abraham pays tithes to him, and we don't hear much more about him except for that Paul cites in the book of Hebrews that this is the model of what Jesus was going to be, that he's going to be the priest who is also the king. And when Jesus comes back in Revelation, we see him coming back as king. So here you see a priest who goes and he sits on his throne, and notice this, and the council of peace shall be between them both. I don't know if you've ever pictured it before that, that Jesus has died on the cross and that he's gone to heaven to intercede on your behalf in a way that he's trying to convince the Father to love you. Have you ever thought that before? Or he's trying somehow to appease the wrath of God, to try to... to Open up a door for you to be able to have salvation that the Father doesn't want to open to you. That's not the picture that you find here in, in, in Zechariah. You find here that he's saying the council of peace will be between them both. They're working together on this. The Father and the are talking together about how to save you, how to deliver you from your sins, how to, how to deliver you from bondage. They're, they're talking about how to pour out grace in your life. As, they, as he intercedes, there's this conversation going on that is for your benefit. Did you know that that's what's taking place in the heavenly sanctuary right now? Jesus is talking to the Father about you, and they're working together trying to figure out how they can best help you to be saved. That's what Jesus prays in John 17. Father, I will that they would be with me, where you are, so that they can behold my glory, the glory which I shared with you before the world was. This is the goal of all of salvation history, to bring you to a salvation in Jesus Christ. In the book, uh, the, the magazine, the Review and Herald, it says this, when we act like culprits under sentence of death, we bear false witness against God. Let that sink in. When you come to God, and you feel like, I'm just a worthless culprit. You bear false witness against God because He values you. He bought you with a price. He gave His own life for you. And when you act like a culprit who's deserving of death, you bear false witness against God and all that He's done for you. We dishonor God when we think of Him only as the judge ready to pass sentence upon us and forget that he is a loving father. And it goes on to say this. This is crucial. The whole spiritual life is molded by your conceptions of God. And if we cherish erroneous views of his character, our souls will sustain injury. We should see in God one who yearns toward the longing to do them good. We should recognize in our Heavenly Father that He has our good in mind, that we don't need to convince Him to save us, but that He's trying to convince us to be saved. We need to recognize that He's doing everything possible. He's poured out all of heaven and giving Himself to die on the cross. How much more does He want to do everything else for us? He wants to show up in your life in every situation that you're facing. And the reason that, that He is so hard on sin is because it separates you from Him. It, it puts a veil between you and Him. It, it, it makes you afraid of Him. It makes you look at the lion of the tribe of Judah and want to run away rather than to run into His embrace. God wants to transform 
our view of what he's all about. If you look in John chapter 16, Jesus set this up before he went to pray this prayer, before he prayed this high priestly prayer. In John chapter 16, Jesus tries to give the disciples an insight into this. Verse 26, In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will pray the Father for you. He uses a a Greek word for an intensity of prayer, like a begging of the Father here. I'm not going to to beg the Father on your behalf. And then look at verse 27. For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from God. The Father himself loves you. Friends, this is good news. We can just go home today knowing that the Father of all the universe loves you and I. Isn't that incredible? When I face difficulties in my life, this can give me confidence. This can give me assurance. When I face sins in my life that I I, want to see it taken out of my life, I recognize that it's harmful to my relationship with others, I can have confidence that he loves me and that he wants to deliver me. And there's something else really beautiful here. Because in the book of John, uh, he uses a word to describe the love of God. At least some theologians feel that this is the way it works. And he uses the word agape. Now sometimes the word agape and phileo are used exchangeably. But sometimes they're not. Sometimes there's something different about them. Agape is this this love of God that is self-sacrificing, other-centered. And we all know that that's how God feels about us. At least I hope we do. But that's not the word for the love of the Father that's used here. The word for the love of the Father that's used here is phileo. That's the word for brotherly love. That's, That's the word for like an affection between two people. This isn't a selfless, I'm going to love you no matter what, just because. But this is a, I like you. I think you're really cool. <laughs> I, I like all the, I, I, I like your personality and, and, and heaven wouldn't be the same without you. And I, I gave my son so that you could be with me forever. I'm crazy about you. I don't know about you, but that kind of love is is even more motivating than just to know that he, he's self-sacrificing, but also to know that, that he likes me. Did you know that God likes you? That he adores you? That you wake up in the morning and, and he's excited for you to, to go and to open your Bible and he says, oh, just wait. I can't wait to show him what I have for them today. One of you were just telling me last night about you've been I'm waking up an hour earlier in order to read the Bible this year. And you were telling me how, as you read the Bible, that, that you noticed the difference that it makes in your perspective throughout the day. Whereas other days when you miss that time of reading, that you don't have that same perspective. There's power in seeing the character of God. And there's also power in approaching the throne of grace in prayer. As we open our hearts to this Father who loves us infinitely. Back a few years ago, I was working on a team, a young adult team. Leah and I were, I think it was just before we were married. We were still dating. And as we were working on this team, the two leaders of the team were pastors. And, and we were just volunteers. Well, we weren't volunteers. We were stipend employees working that year, doing youth ministry, traveling around with the youth evangelism team in the Central California area. 
as we traveled around doing different things, there would come different occasions when they would say, ah, well, I really wish that we could figure out this from the conference office, which was the one that coordinated the work that we were doing. And I said, if only we could talk to Jerry Page. If only we could talk to Jerry Page about this. Yeah, but I don't know if he would do that. I don't know. I'm too scared. They were like scared to talk to this guy. Well, for those of you that don't know, Jerry Page is my dad. And Leah and I knew my dad pretty well. We often spent time with him. We went on vacation with him. And we're thinking, why are they scared of my dad? Why, why don't they just go ask him? Just call him up. I said, here's his cell phone number. They're like, oh, no, 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 no. We wouldn't just call him up. No, you don't understand. That's uh, all right. We'll figure something else out. We don't have to worry about it. I say, well, what do you mean? Well, fine. I'll just go ask him tonight. So we'd go home and we'd say, hey, they're thinking about this. And his answer would be, yeah, of course, I'll do that for you. I've learned since then the amount of influence that a child has. You have to be careful with it. (laughs) Your parents respond quickly, and I'm thankful that I have a loving father who's represented to me what it's like when God likes you. (laughs) When you come to God and, and you come to him in his name. I mean, I share the same name with my dad, Paige. In fact, as a kid, I remember he would tell me as I went off to school, I'd be driving off to high school, and he kind of knew that I was headed down the wrong path, and he'd tell me, hold the page name high today, son. I thought he was crazy, but I knew what he meant. (laughs) He meant, represent the family well. (laughs) Treat people well today. Don't, Don't defame the name. Jesus says, keep them in my name. My name that is mercy and grace. Abounding in goodness and truth. Forgiving. Keep them in my name. And it's as we're in that name that we can come to God and recognize that he's a loving father. And that as we approach the throne of grace to come to our intercessor, our great high priest, that we don't even have to to just pray to Jesus, but the father himself loves us. The father himself likes us. And he wants to answer our prayers. Isn't that good news? Isn't that beautiful? This is what the lion of the tribe of Judah is like. He loves you. He likes you. And he wants to give you the very best thing in your your life. Just look at all the promises in the Bible. Psalm 84 and verse 11 tells us that the Lord God is is a sun and shield. And he gives grace to us. and, And no good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Nothing good will he withhold from you. And so if you've been asking for something and you haven't gotten the answer that you're looking for, you can trust that your good father, he's answering in the best possible way for you because he will not withhold any good thing from you. You don't have to convince him to do you good. He already wants to do you good in your life. He already wants to bless your life. So what is the purpose of prayer? Why do we go to God in prayer? I mean, what difference does it make? Why even have 10 days of prayer? The book Steps to Christ. I encourage you, there's actually some on the rack back there if you don't have one. And if they run out, then grab another one. Or you can find the book online. But chapter 11, The Privilege of Prayer. It says this, The darkness of the evil one encloses those who neglect to pray. The whispered temptations of the enemy entice them to sin, and it is all because they do not make use of the privileges that God has given them in the divine appointment of prayer. The adversary seeks continually to 
obstruct the way to the mercy seat that we may not by earnest supplication and faith obtain grace and power to resist temptation. There's this picture in the Bible that not only was the high priest to intercede, but oftentimes when they had their high days that everyone else would come around the sanctuary and they would all join him in praying and we get to join in that conversation about our salvation, about the salvation of our loved ones. And when we don't participate in it, it cuts off that communication. It, it cuts off our, our ability to see the beauty of Jesus, to, to recognize his love for us. And it changes us in a way that leads us in the path of sin rather than in the path of righteousness. And we talked about righteousness. What is righteousness? Righteousness is obedience to the law, and the law is love. God is love. Righteousness is likeness to God, which is similar to holiness. God wants to restore his image in us of a righteous, loving spirit in each of us. He wants to give this to us. But oftentimes I find that in my prayer, I come to God and I come to him like a lion. Either I'm afraid that he's going to hurt me and I'm trying to appease him, or I'm like a lion tamer. I want to put up a picture here. There was a guy actually by the name of Isaac Van Amberg who first started off with the lion show in America. And he began to go inside of lion's cages. He would actually stick his head inside a lion, and, and it attracted crowds. It's become a popular thing where you have these guys who dress up, and they get lions to jump around, and sometimes they jump through hoops. You'll see this next one is an Olympian, actually, who's a, a lion who, who gets lions to jump through hoops. And you'll see another one here where a lion's jumping through a, a fiery hoop. Sometimes in my prayer life, this is exactly what I'm trying to do. God, if you would just jump through this hoop, my life would be good and we can go on our way. (laughs) You ever try to do that in your prayers? Ever try to say, God, I just need this. (laughs) Just do this for me. (laughs) But God is too good to err. He wants to give you what's best in your life. He doesn't want to give you things that are harmful in your life. He's the loving Father who likes you. And who wants what's best for your life. And no good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. And so when my prayers aren't answered as quickly as I'd like, I believe in part it's for the transformation of my own heart. So that I approach closer to that throne. So I I keep crying out to God, God, I need your help. And the more that I cry out, the more that I ask for his help, the more that I love him. I found this is a little marriage secret Um, By the way, we're going to have a relationship series coming up in February where my wife will give you a lot of relationship tips. I know I've talked about it a lot, but I think she's going to share some with us, which will be a good thing. But in our relationship, we found something. The more that we say, I love you to each other, the more that our love follows our words. I encourage you to do it. If you haven't said, I love you to your wife in a while, then go ahead and say it right now. Turn to them. Say, I love you. If you don't have a spouse here today, then say I love you to Jesus right now because I believe the same exact principle applies in my life with Jesus. The more that I say I love you to Jesus, the more that I'm connected with him through prayer, the more that it lifts me up into his presence, the more that it gives me a sense of his love for me. And that's the delightful thing about our lives. God allows us to come into trials. He allows us to come into difficulties 
so that we cry out to him, so that we sense our need of him, so that we can be drawn closer to God. In the book Steps to Christ, the same chapter, it says, prayer is the opening of the heart to God as to a friend. It's just opening up our hearts and letting Jesus in. And isn't that what it's like in a good friendship, a good relationship? You know, I come home and, and my wife is able to, to use quite a few more words than I. And, and she'll tell me all about her day. She'll tell me everything that's going on in her life. And, and sometimes the next day, I'll say, oh, I meant to tell you this yesterday. Well, why didn't you tell me yesterday? Why'd you wait till today? I just thought, well, this probably isn't a good time for it. I tend to not be as communicative. But I, when it comes to Jesus, I want to be more like my wife. I want to just tell him everything. I want my heart to be constantly open. Prayer is the opening of a heart to God as to a friend. How many of you don't want to come for 10 days of prayer where you're just developing a closer friendship with the God of the universe who wants to fill you with joy? Proverbs 15 verse 8 says that the prayer of the upright is his delight. It's delightful to God what we come and do as we pray and we call out to him. It's delightful as we recognize his loving character. Not that it is necessary in order to make known to God what we are, but in order to enable us to receive him. Prayer does not bring God down to us, but brings us up to him. We come to the 10 days of prayer not so that we can convince God to come down and to display himself, but so that God can transform who we are, so that he can lift us up into his presence. And you find that Jesus modeled this in his own life, his own ministry, From the very start in Mark chapter 1 and verse 35, it says that early in the morning, long before day, he went off into a solitary place and prayed. In Luke 5.16, it says that he frequently went off into the wilderness to pray. Why did he do this? Because he found delight. He found comfort. He found joy in that communion which he and the Father had enjoyed throughout eternity. It was a joyful thing. God wants for prayer to be delightful, and that can only take place when we recognize that he likes us, that he loves us, that he wants to talk with us, that he wants to be there for us, that he wants to do us good in our lives. As John and Ace stood there, they looked at that rock, and they looked at that creature who was coming down the rock. And I actually want to show you a video clip of that moment where John and Ace are there in Kenya and they watch the lion approach them. Just imagine what might be going through your heart as you see a huge African lion come charging down a hill at you. Right? Here comes the lion, a wild African lion. You see as he embraces John and Ace. This is out in the the wild in in, in Kenya. And this lion loves John and Ace. This is a... Can you just imagine that that's how Jesus feels when you come to him in prayer? Can you imagine that that's what the 10 days of prayer is like for God? He says the, the, the prayer of the upright is, is my delight. I just can't wait. I'm the lion of the tribe of Judah and I just want to give you an embrace. Won't you just open your heart to me? And not just during the 10 days of prayer, but every moment of every day, pray without ceasing. 
in that same book, The Substance of Christ, it says that, that prayer, unceasing prayer, is just the unbroken union of the soul with God. It's the opening of our heart to God as to a friend. Christian, the lion, was like that because here's a little picture of Christian when he was younger. Christian had a name, by the way, that lion that came down the rock. It makes all the difference in the world when you know somebody's name. When you know the lion's name, it changes absolutely everything. Well, John and Ace were walking through a store in London when they saw this little lion for sale. And so they bought this lion and the lion kept getting bigger. They kept him in their apartment there. He, he would sit on the couch with them. He would eat at their table with them. And they would feed him steaks. They developed a relationship with this lion. But the lion kept getting bigger. Here's a picture of them trying to drive him through town. And you see, it, it begins to get scary to people in London. They eventually had to move him to the basement of the, the furniture factory where they lived because this lion was getting huge. They used this open church grounds to exercise Christian But as Christian got bigger and bigger and bigger, finally they had to release him. And that video that you just saw was after he had lived an entire year in the wild on his own. He'd he'd been able to succeed. He'd been able to have cubs. And in fact, if we could have watched more of the documentary uh, about Christian the lion, he introduces his wife to these two and he introduces his first cub to John and Ace. Because there was a relationship there. It had been built through hearts being open. And and love had transformed the heart of a lion. God's heart doesn't need transforming. But my heart does. Will you join me in opening your heart as a friend to God? I'm realizing that I do this a lot less than I want to. And that's really because I don't recognize how close he is and how much of a friend he wants to be. I realize that it's because I don't really see his character revealed in Scripture. And the more that I dive into who God is, the more that I realize he he wants to live in constant communion with me. I'm so incredibly thankful that we reset our alarm clock back there after the power went off last week so that the alarm could go off to remind me that more than anything else, I want to close today so that You can go and experience this. That's what Sabbath is all about. It's a day to commune with God. Maybe this afternoon, instead of sleeping, go talk to Jesus. Open your heart to Him as to a friend. He's crazy about you. He loves you. And don't hang on to the sin in your life. I'm realizing that the stuff, the habits, the stuff that I think feels so good in comparison to God, it's so empty. Jesus is so wonderful. I'd rather have him than anything else. And I want to encourage you. Surrender your heart to Jesus today. He wants to embrace you. He wants to bring you into a close and intimate fellowship. In closing, I just again want to have a time of silence and prayer just for you to open your heart to God as to a friend. And in that time, I want you to ask him to impress you how you might open your heart more constantly to him how you might have more of an experience in, in communing with the, the God who's crazy about you, who's working out your salvation, who's doing everything possible for you. Maybe it involves setting an alarm clock a few times a day to get in the habit of remembering to talk to Him. Whatever it takes to shift your perspective so that you're constantly talking to your best friend, do it because it's worth it. Let's pray.
Father, thank you that you like us. You love us. You're crazy about us. You have given everything for us. And now you're trying to work out our salvation. And God, forgive me. Forgive me for getting so distracted from that. For for looking at everything else in my life, for worrying about the problems, for, for forgetting that you have all power, that I can bring every request to you, that I can cast every care on you. Lord, here we are. And in the silence of our own hearts, we just want to ask that you would take us deeper in this precious walk with you, that you would teach us how to open our hearts to you as to a friend and to leave them open, to never close the door again. Father, we just echo Jesus' prayer. Would you keep us in your name? Because you are beautiful. Thank you for your love for us. Give us a greater and greater love for you. We only love you because you first loved us. Would you please reveal that love to us more and more every day? In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.